You know, it's, it's interesting when you think about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You weren't expecting that phrase, were you? <laughs> this great book in which you see the, the wicked white witch who has control over Narnia. Evil has fallen upon the land, and there is an eternal winter that is taking place. The four siblings, Peter, Edmund, Susan and Lucy, they come in contact with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they begin to explain to these four children what's happening in Narnia. Discouragement settles in upon the hearts of these four siblings. But then Mr. Beaver gives them these five words of encouragement. Aslan is on the move. This understanding that Aslan, the lion king of Nardia, was on the move. It brought courage and strength and hope to all the citizens of this kingdom. Well, for 60 Sundays, dating back to August 2019, with periodic breaks in between, we've been studying this great gospel of Mark as a faith family. And we have seen Jesus on the move in the gospel of Mark. Well, to wrap up our series through this book, I'd like to go back and do a summary of the book of Mark and let's remind one another of who this book is pointing us towards. And it all begins in chapter one, verse one of the gospel of Mark. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter one. It is somewhat of a a sad moment for me whenever we come to the point of finishing a book series because I feel like I'm saying goodbye to a close friend. Uh, for years, I've been in, uh, studying this great gospel and learning about Jesus and who he is. I have fallen more in love with Christ. I've been amazed by his works. If I've been staring at the text and seeing who he is and how he has worked, it has made me, it's compelled me to love Christ all the more. I shared with someone this morning about how today is going to be our last day in the book of Mark. And they said, I don't believe you. <laughs> well, maybe one day we'll come back. But for today, we're going to be wrapping this up. John Mark is the author of this gospel. He is friend and traveling companion of Simon Peter. According to tradition, Mark wrote down Peter's account near the end of Peter's ministry in Rome before he is crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. Though this is the shortest of the four gospel books, it's fast paced, it's hard hitting, it's action packed. Thus the title of the sermon series, On the Move. And what sets Mark's gospel apart from Matthew and Luke and John is the pace. 41 times the word immediately appears in this book. Mark spends very little time using transition words in between events of Jesus, but rather he makes this quick storyline, uh, this quick storyline transition from one story to another that is fast. The majority of the book is written in the present tense. But Mark also, he gives vivid detail that the other gospel writers don't. It's almost like Mark is following Jesus around with his phone and recording these incredible miraculous events and he stops it and then starts it back up again. And they all kind of just are mashed together. In these 16 chapters, it kind of feels like an action-packed movie. 
Now put this in your notes. Mark focuses on the actions of Jesus more than the teachings of Jesus. You can go into Matthew and Luke and you can find more parables there. Matthew has about 20 parables. Luke has about 27 parables of Jesus where Mark only has seven. But it's also important to note that in Mark's gospel, he organizes his gospel not around chronology, but geography. When you read Mark chapters one through 16, all together in one sitting, it'll take you about an hour. It's not in sequential order. In fact, you'll see primarily in chapters one through eight take place in northern Israel. Apart from Jesus' baptism and his temptation in chapter one, everything else from that point on through chapter eight is all in the north. And then you got chapters nine through 16 that all take place in the south, right around Judea and the Jerusalem area. The gospel of Mark is fast paced. It's gritty, it's vivid, and it's powerful. And this book is continually pointing us to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the suffering servant, the Lord, the prophet, and King of the Jews. And as we take one last 30,000 foot view of this gospel, I want you to notice this morning in the text these three themes that are woven throughout the book. I want you to see first the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus of Jesus. Mark launches into the thesis of his book in which he on the outset tells us what he's all about in Mark chapter 1 beginning with verse 1. The scripture says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God. Mark is beginning here by saying I am going to share with you the gospel. I'm going to share with you the good news. And the good news of Jesus is the greatest news there is. This is the best news that the world has ever heard. That God himself has entered into our world. Now what's different about Mark is that Matthew and Luke begin with the Christmas story. Mark doesn't give us Mary and Joseph. Mark doesn't give us the angels appearing to shepherds at night. He begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. And Mark quotes both Isaiah and Malachi and is saying the Lord is going to send a forerunner, a messenger, one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. That God himself is going to come and be with us and there's going to be one who's going to come and set him up. And that person is John the Baptist. We see in chapter one where John the Baptist comes forth. He is preaching and he is calling people to repentance and he is the one who is baptizing out in the desert. We see in chapter one, verse one, where Mark also gives us two titles for this Lord, this Messiah who would come. He calls him verse one, Christ. This is the Greek word for the word Messiah, anointed one. The one that the entire Old Testament is pointing us towards. He also gives a second title regarding Jesus. Verse one, he is the son of God. That in Jesus is God who has existed from all of eternity as God the Son. Jesus is the Son of God who has come into the world, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Mark begins his gospel by declaring Jesus. This book is about Jesus. He is the one that we have been looking forward to. The entire book is about him, which by the way, your Bible is a hymn book. H-I-M, it's all about Jesus. 
We covered this several weeks ago, looking at Luke 24, in which Jesus said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he began to explain to them all the things written concerning himself. The entire Bible is driving us to Jesus. It's pointing to him as the fulfillment, as the focus, as the central apex of all of history, all of life, and it's all about Christ. And here we see where Mark begins his gospel with John the Baptist, the forerunner preparing the way for the Messiah. He is the one who is going to set up this future Messiah. And we find out verse 9, it's Jesus who hails from Nazareth. And as Jesus is lowered into the water, as he is baptized, as he comes up out of the water, we see where the Spirit of God falls upon him like a dove. And there is a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. Jesus receives the affirmation of the Father and the Spirit. He's then taken out into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. From there, he goes north to Galilee, where he gives a press conference about the gospel. Verse 14, Jesus declares, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. This is the message that Jesus came preaching, calling people, turn away from your sinful ways. Turn away from your selfishness. Turn away from your pride and look unto me. Believe upon me. The kingdom of God has arrived and it is pointing to me. The king has arrived. Then we see in the text how the lion of the tribe of Judah begins to build his pride of lions. He hits the recruiting trail and he calls Simon Peter and Andrew, James and John. And then we see the kingdom of God go on an all out assault against the kingdom of darkness. We see power in Jesus' teaching. He teaches chapter 1, verse 22 and 27 as one who has authority. That when he preaches, when he teaches, the people are shocked. They're amazed at what comes out of his mouth. He teaches not as one of the scribes or Pharisees, but with one who has authority. His teaching receives the most attention in chapter 4, where he tells these parables about the kingdom and in chapter four, he both reveals and conceals. He, he's revealing the kingdom, but he's also hiding it from those who have no interest in following after him. We see the full mystery of God, the mystery of God in his kingdom. It's on full display now. It's pointing to Christ. We see power not only in his teaching, we see his power over demons. He drives out demons out of people. Chapter one, verse 25. We see in Mark chapter five, where Jesus goes to the other side of the lake. He goes to the Gentile side of the lake where there is a man who has been chained up in a cemetery. He's been cutting himself with rocks, screaming out. He's a madman who's possessed. Jesus gets out of the boat. He approaches him and the man runs to Jesus and bows. And there you see this demon who is terrified of Jesus. What a picture of what's coming, what Paul says in Philippians 2, in which there's coming a day in which every knee will bow, even Satan. We see this man who's demon-possessed bow before King Jesus. And this demon speaks, and he is terrified of King Jesus. And Jesus sends him out. We see Jesus has power in his teaching. 
He has power over demons. We also see throughout the text where Jesus has power over sickness. Even right here in chapter one, where he goes to Simon Peter's mom, who is sick with a fever, and he grabs her hand and lifts her up out of bed and she is completely healed. As his fame spreads far and wide, people line up out the door wanting to be healed by Jesus. An entire town of people show up who are suffering and all these various ailments and Jesus heals all of them. When a man who has leprosy approaches Jesus, Jesus touches him. And I remember under the Old Testament that you're considered unclean if you have a skin disease. or If you have leprosy, no one can touch you. You've got to live separate. Well, for a man with leprosy, no one's touched him. No one's embraced him. No one showed compassion towards him. But here comes Jesus. And Jesus, the text says, touches him. You see, Jesus became unclean so that this man could become clean. Jesus entered into the mess of our lives so that through him we can be cleaned up and be changed. Ultimately, this is realized at the cross where Jesus embraces and he touches and he takes all of our uncleanness, all of your sin, all of your mess, all of your selfishness and pride and everything that feels like is falling apart in your life because you just can't seem to do the right thing. Jesus takes it upon himself. He says, I'll become unclean and through him you are made clean. We see Jesus is the one who has power and authority in his teaching, his power and authority over demons, his power and authority over sickness. We see this later in Mark chapter five, where this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, she has spent her savings account on doctor bills and none of them have helped. All she's done is gotten tortured under these false doctors who take her money and she is still bleeding. And the text says that she approaches him and just touches the hem of his garment. And the moment she touches the garment, she feels, she, uh, she's healed. She senses it. She feels it. It's pointing back to uh, Malachi, I believe chapter four, where it says that the Messiah will come with healing in his wings. Well, the garment that Jesus wore was the shawl and upon it were these long tassels, which were called wings. And as this woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, he brings healing into her life. The wings of Jesus bring healing into her. We see this in the life of a paralytic a man who's been paralyzed for most of his life. He's been unable to walk. He has suffered, but he has four friends who break open a roof and lower him down. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus heals him of his greatest need of having his sins forgiven. All of these Pharisees become angry over such a comment. Who is this guy claiming to forgive sins? That's blasphemy, unless you're God. And Jesus says, which is easier to say? Son, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. Well, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks out. Jesus has power and authority over sickness, over disease. This is who he is. We see in chapter 7 where he approaches a deaf man and he heals him. We see in chapter 8 where he goes to a blind man and he heals him. This is what Jesus does. We also see the power of Jesus over nature. 
In Mark chapter four, Jesus wakes up from a nap in a boat in the middle of a tempest, in the middle of a storm, and the disciples are panicking. These fishermen are thinking, we're about to die. And what does Jesus do? Peace, be still. And the winds stop. The water becomes calm. Jesus has authority over nature. The one who spoke creation into existence in Genesis 1, the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, is the one who can tell storms to stop and they obey. The winds and the storms obey Jesus. Behold the power of Jesus in which he has all authority even over the weather. We see this later on in chapter six where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. He then walks on water. And then a few, chapter later, a few chapters later, he feeds 4,000 more people. He is Lord over all of creation, even water and food. We see Jesus who has power over death. In chapter five, we see a 12-year-old girl who dies. Jesus approaches her deathbed. And with grieving parents looking upon their little girl, Jesus takes her by the hand and says, Talitha Kum, little girl, I say to you, arise. And Jesus has authority over death. And he proves it himself by years later going to the cross, being laid in a tomb and rising again on the third day. He has all authority. Westwood, behold the power of Jesus. He is not weak. He is not impotent. He is the omnipotent, all-sovereign creator. He is the sustainer of all things. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who ordained for you to wake up this morning to have life and breath. He's the one who enables you to hear, to see, to think, to believe, to have life. He is the one who is sovereign over all and he is the all-powerful savior. Behold your king. You see the kingdom of Christ here. It is upending and reversing the disease and death inherited from Adam. We see King Jesus who is bringing the light of the gospel against the darkness. It's a new day that's come. Jesus has arrived on the scene and he is reversing everything that Adam's sin in the garden brought forth. Jesus is showing his power over all things. And what we see in the kingdom of Christ and what Jesus is doing in the New Testament, it's pointing forward to a future day in which there is no more suffering. There's no more disease. There's no more death. We just sang it together. No need for a hospital room. Funeral homes, we put out of business. We're gonna be set free. Jesus is picturing what is coming. Behold this all-powerful Savior. Would you fall in more love with him today? Would you behold your savior? Would you treasure Jesus and be amazed by his power? The other thing I want you to see here in the text is not only the power of Jesus. I want you to see number two, the plan of Jesus. Jesus here in chapters eight through 10 is focusing primarily on his disciples. These 12 men who are his selected agents, these 
apostles who will one day go forth as sent ones who will take this gospel to the ends of the earth, minus one. He's preparing them for what's about to happen. He's letting them know about what is ahead, but they're struggling to understand. We see in Mark chapter eight, where Jesus takes them on a field trip. They go on a retreat up to Caesarea Philippi. And against the background of all these Roman gods that are being worshiped, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're a prophet. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ. He's revealing his identity. All of a sudden, he gets it. Simon Peter understands identity. He's got Christ. He knows who he is. But then understanding who Jesus is means also identifying with what Jesus does. For Jesus would then turn to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he says, then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes and be killed and rise after three days. That's his plan. Simon doesn't like this plan. He says, Lord, text says that Simon Peter rebuked Jesus. Can I tell you, that's not a good idea. As your pastor, don't ever seek to rebuke the word of Jesus. And Jesus turned, and I can imagine him saying this without pointing his finger, get behind me, Satan. For you have in mind the things of earth. You don't have in mind the things of God. For Jesus was tunnel visioned, focused on the task that was ahead of him, which was the cross. That was why he came, to seek and to save that which was lost. And the way he does so is through his substitutionary death. By going to the cross, taking our place, and absorbing the full wrath of God towards sin. He not only tells them there in Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 31, he says it again in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. He tells them weeks later, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. The disciples still don't understand it. So then they set out on one final trip south. This is where that pivot takes place, where you have the northern kingdom ministry up in the Galilee area. Now he's headed south, chapter 9 and chapter 10. We see he's going into Jerusalem, Mark chapter 10, verse 33. And he says, the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And he will rise after three days. Jesus here is calling his shot and says, I know exactly what's about to happen. And he's letting his disciples in on the plan of God. That from before the foundations of the earth had ever been laid, this was the plan of God. That he was going to send forth his son who would give his life at the cross. This was the plan of God to send Jesus to save those who are lost. And each time Jesus says this, the disciples are confused. They become anxious. They become afraid. From their perspective, Jesus is this victorious military king from the line of David who's finally going to take down Rome. This is seen best in the encounter in Mark 10 where 
James and John approach Jesus and ask for a seat at his right and his left in the new kingdom. Like, hey, Jesus, when you go sit on your throne, how about me and him sit at the right and left? The text says in Mark chapter 10 that the disciples become indignant. That means, word means that they were ticked. They were angry, probably because they didn't think of it first. And here is Jesus, just days away from heading into Jerusalem, just days away from his cross. And the 12 guys he selected are now fighting over musical chairs around the throne. I mean, I can imagine being at this moment saying, oh my goodness gracious, this is where we are. And Jesus says, huddle up, boys, come in. What you have in mind, this leadership, is the way the world works. The Gentiles exercise their authority over one another. May it not be so among you. That if you want to be great, you've got to become a servant. If you want to be in first place, you, guys, you must first be slave of all. And then we get to Mark 10.45, which I believe is the climax of all of Mark's gospel. I think Mark 10.45 really is the thrust, it's the apex, it's the focus of what Mark is communicating. Mark 10.45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's teaching his disciples, this is what it means to be a follower. This is what it means to be a disciple. It's in which you understand the plan of God in that I came not to be served, I'm the king I'm the one who made all things. You'd think this is the one who'd say, man, come and serve me. That's not our savior. That's not what he does. He humbles himself and he washes feet and he cares for the sick and he heals the leprosy. And he's a God who draws near to us. And see, the disciples thought they would get fame and power. They're part of Jesus's posse. They're part of his group. And Jesus says, no, no, if you're gonna follow me, you gotta deny yourself. You've gotta pick up your cross. You've got to be prepared to die. You've got to be willing to say no to your flesh. You've got to be willing to put to death your pride. If you're going to follow me, your old self has to be crucified if you are going to follow me. And this is one of the hard parts of following Christ is that you have to die. You have to deny the desires of your flesh. You have to say no to the things that you want deep in your heart. This old nature, you have to put it to death. And there's a sense in which when you put your faith in Jesus, your old nature died with Christ. You're now hidden with him. Yes and amen. It's your permanent position. And yet simultaneously, you are being what's called sanctified, the Bible says. You're being made holy. The word sanctified means you're becoming more like Jesus. It's the mission of God to help you become more and more like Christ, to change your character, to change the way you speak, to change the way you think, to change the way you feel, to change the way that you act. God is setting you apart and changing you to make you become more and more like Christ. That's his mission. Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. It's the mission of God to make you look like Jesus. And Jesus is telling his disciples, if you're going to follow me, you got to be willing to deny yourself. You've got to say no to your best life now and all of that hot garbage. You've got to say, if you're going to follow me, you got to be willing to say no to your flesh, say no to what you want, and you say yes to following me. Jesus is pointing to himself, who is the ultimate servant. 
And as we'll see when we get to the end of his life, he is the suffering servant that Isaiah tells us about who will give his life at the cross as a ransom for many. This is the plan of Jesus. So we see the power of Jesus, the plan of Jesus. Third and finally, we see the passion of Jesus. We see that he arrives into Jerusalem with a very public and very royal parade. He's riding on a humble donkey, the suffering servant king. He's coming into his own city as a humble servant on a humble animal. And during this Passion Week, he overturns tables, asserts his authority in the temple. He runs out the thieves and the crooks, stops the sacrificial system. For the next week, throughout this week, Jesus would call these religious leaders out for their hypocrisy, stirring them to anger and ultimately will be instruments of seeking to kill Jesus. In fact, we get to, during this Passion Week, Jesus goes on the Mount of Olives where he gathers his disciples together and he teaches them about the end of the world. In Mark 13, and you can cross-reference this with Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus is saying, this is what the end of the world's gonna look like. And he even begins to prophesy about an event that's gonna happen about four decades later. In 70 AD, when indeed Rome would come in and sack Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and the sacrificial system would be completely destroyed from that point. Jesus is showing himself as the true prophet of God. And during this week, he's using this time with his disciples to prepare them for what is about to happen. For it all culminates on the last night when he meets with his disciples for the Last Supper. They eat the Passover meal. He teaches them what this meal symbolizes and how it's pointing to him that he is the Passover lamb who's about to have his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. That indeed he is the bread that is about to be broken at the cross. That he is the cup in which his blood would be poured out for us. Jesus is then arrested, tried, put before priests, Roman government, Pilate, resulting ultimately in his crucifixion. At the cross, instead of a cloud falling upon him like it did at his baptism, darkness falls upon the land. And instead of a father who is speaking from the heavens words of affirmation over his son, it is the voice of Jesus crying out with no answer. For it is there that Jesus is crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there he hangs on that cross for six hours on that Friday where he suffers, suffers, and he gives his life. And yet it's amazing that even in that moment, a Roman soldier gets it. He looks upon Jesus and says, truly, this is the son of God. Jesus dies, he's placed in a tomb And on the third day, he rises from the grave. These women show up. They realize the tomb is empty. An angel tells them he's not here. He's risen. He then orders for these women, go tell the disciples. They they run away. The, The gospel ends with these women running in fear towards the disciples to announce what has happened. 
We unpacked several weeks ago the, the brackets around verses 9 through 20. How Mark probably did not write this section, but it's probable that it was added later. And yet we can cross-reference verses 9 through 20 with other New Testament texts that help confirm what's written. Mark ends his gospel, in essence, with leaving the reader with a decision. Is Jesus the promised Messiah, Son of God, or is he not? And for 16 chapters, we have this compelling narrative that points to Jesus and how he is proving himself of who he really is all the way back from chapter one, verse one. And indeed, he is the Christ. He is the son of God. Aslan is on the move. Jesus is working all over the world. And what's so amazing is that not only is Jesus on the move here and then, he is here and now. Jesus is on the move right now all over the world. Aslan is on the move. And though we look at our news stations and it feels like an eternal winter, where it feels like the wicked witch has control, she does not. Aslan is on the move. Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things. He is calling people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to come to himself. Aslan is on the move. The Lion King is the one who is pursuing people and calling them to himself. He's changing people and he is on the move here and now. He is on the move in our church. He's on the move in your life. And he is calling you to himself to step out and say, Lord, I give my life completely to you. In fact, that's the call this morning. It's your impact point. Submit your life to King Jesus. What part of my life, Kenneth? All. Jesus wants all of you. He wants your future. He wants your past. He wants your money. He wants your desires, your family, your aspirations, your career, your sports, who you are, your body, your mind, your emotions, all that you have, all that today you would humble yourself and submit to King Jesus. For he is the one who is on the move. And when you submit your life to Christ, you're going to see Jesus do things that you never imagined. You're going to find him doing things in your life that do not make sense to the world. But he is the Savior. He is the King. And he is honored.